1: Stagedoor Johnny! Stage Stage! Stage Door
2: Johnny! Not a lot of rhymes with Johnny. But here it is Stage Door Johnny. Hello, welcome to Stage Door Johnny. I'm Jonathan Cake and thanks for joining me for the second part of my chat with Zadie Smith. Not much to say, so let's just get straight to it and I'll come back at the end for a wrap-up and some thanks and previewing the guest for next week. But here's the second part of my chat with the wonderful Zadie Smith. I want to talk about your suspicions about the theatre, because then I really want to (laughs) understand whether, honestly, whether you feel like there's more for you there, whether you feel like this is a sort of tourist experience that you're happy visiting, but don't necessarily want to live there, or whether, uh, actually, you might get a timeshare.
3: In New York recently, I was just there for four days, and I went to see... My friend Will Arbery's play, he's a young-ish playwright, yeah. early 30s, and I went with Jesse, who makes Succession, that TV show, and Will is working on Succession as well, or was. And it was at Playwrights Horizons, is that what it's called? Yeah. And this is a play he wrote. I mean, Will, I think, is. a I suspect him of being a genius. <laughs> his first play is extraordinary. And this is from his juvenilia. Like, he found this thing he'd written when he was younger, and he dug it up and re-worked it a little and put it on, it's basically about environmental collapse but it features two guys who are cleaning the salt off the roads in Evanston, Illinois. Oh yes,
2: I read about this play.
3: This play was unbelievable. It was unbelievable. And the feeling in the theatre, like I've seen a lot of art about environmental collapse and it doesn't have an effect on anybody. But this play, which was, I mean it's possible you might not notice it's about environmental collapse but I think the dread that it created was so extraordinary in the theatre I felt, this dread and it was opening night so it's like you know New York in their glad rags everybody's supposedly meant to be having a good time that feeling was the play just ignored it and by the end I could feel feel people like clinging onto their seats Uh, it was really hardcore and I don't think that's that common in other art forms they experience it collectively
2: and is that something that interests
3: you that's something that really interests me and the cinema which used to deliver it has kind of conceded the ground mainly to Marvel and all the rest of it. So you don't get that feeling in the cinema very often either. So the theatre is the place where it still happens. Yes.
2: My friend Jess Butterworth, who was the last episode, said when I asked him why didn't he ever write novels, he said well, you can't go for a drink with the characters in your novels. No,
3: that's why I write novels. (laughs) (laughs) You don't want to go for a drink with
2: them. You want to go home and go to bed. No, but also he said something brilliant like about Rick from Casablanca, say so that you know he's never Rick's never heard anybody laugh or cry. Yeah, you know that sense that what you're talking about in the Will Arbery's play, this sense of actual human yeah. connection, the thing it was set up to do, right? The way it evolved from ritual. Yeah, this is this is still a real
3: yeah, yeah it's thing. really, It's really, I mean, intense. it's hard,
2: bloody hard to do. But you obviously just recently experienced it. I think
3: it's really intense. My brother was in the Jazz Butterworth thing I think was he? about. The Romans. Who oh, the
2: Britannia? Yeah, he yeah, yeah. played centurion. So I want to ask, I'm, I'm very, yes. very, very curious about, because you also said, it's my one and done play. So it's going to be an only <laughs> child. You did. You no, said, I'm I, not coming back. I
3: did start writing another play, but then, you know, for a novelist, writing a play for a while feels incredibly easy. Like you start and you're like, oh. shit, I'm halfway through this play and it's only, it's been two days. <laughs> this is extraordinary. <laughs>
1: there's went, nothing this to it.
3: fucking nothing to it. But then the moment I came across the problem, I just kind of sat there and I was like no okay no (laughs) and then when I was talking to people at the theatre about it like a dramaturg friend of mine who's working there he was like but in the theatre you don't have to solve all the problems by yourself you don't sit at a desk there's actors there's dramaturgs you can like discuss it with people and we can find a solution I was like hmm (laughs) I hadn't considered that Peter Peter
2: Schaffer famously wrote "Across the Andes in the Royal Hunt of the Sun or exit pursued by a bear it
3: didn't occurred to me that this is i forgot that collective part of it i went yeah. back into the novelist mode which is just let leave me alone with this idea and I'll. right but you don't need to do that in theater you can work with people but it is it, it's so far out of my comfort zone i have i haven't been around people a lot you know yeah. in five years yeah. in concentrated bursts like a novelist writes all day and then texts somebody another writer a friend and says do you want to go for a drink right now and that's what you do but it's kind of everything is controlled yeah yeah. Even fun is controlled one way or another.
2: I want to know a bit more, understand a bit more about whether you have suspicions about the theatre. For example, you mentioned going to see Alvin Ailey with your mum yes. when I think you were 12. Yes. Yeah. This, this is the published date. And you might also hate having your what you wrote or said quoted back mm. to you. But, and it might also be bollocks. But, so tell me if it is. But you wrote about that, about seeing that performance. He wrote, I was suspicious of racial uplift in general, the way it always seemed to point in the same direction, toward the supposed higher arts, the theatre, but not the television, opera singers, but not beatboxers, ballet dancers, but not body poppers. No, this is very funny, no Jamaican mother ever ran into a kid's bedroom waving a cassette crying, have you heard Push It? (laughs) It's by some brilliant young ladies from New York. Yet I couldn't imagine anything on the legitimate stage meaning as much to me as salt and Pepper's Bump and Grind. So do you still feel that about the theatre, that it's sort of there to slightly lecture us? It doesn't mean as much to you as these other art forms.
3: Well, there is a long tradition of English novelists, particularly, saying terrible things about the theatre, and then we all laugh. I'm not even going to name names, but the generation above me, it was taken as read that the theatre is written by idiots and is idiotic, <laughs> really? with the really? exception of you know
2: Shakespeare we, or whatever. Are we talking about McEwen, Rusty? I'm not saying a word. Of course not.
3: But that there was that kind of general
2: feeling. It's for children.
3: Yeah, and I don't feel that at all. But I do think. I do think that there is a lot of bad writing in theatre. That's just sure, unavoidable. Totally. There is a lot of bad writing. My argument is there's a lot of bad writing everywhere. Yeah. And if you look back over you know, 50 years of novel writing in any period of the history of the novel, 99% of it will be shit. That's just the way it goes. Right. But a th- bad theatre is public, it's embarrassing, yeah. it closes, it makes a fuss. Bad novels just disappear. And also, a bad theatre is very punishing to sit through. Yes. Because with a novel, you get to say, that was terrible, and <sighs> I'm done on page one. was yet you're there. I did find it very liberating in the 90s to say to me and Nick both to agree with each other that we can leave halfway. Yes. There's no way. I Look, am not staying for the second half of that this.
2: famous Philip Larkin thing, where he's watching the Playboy of the Western World, and he suddenly realises he can leave at half time. That's a great play. Says, Larkin's I- a classic example a- of this furious <laughs> he said, tradition. Right, he said something like, am I enjoying myself? no I've never seen such balls and I walked out into the afternoon sunshine and it's like the, one of the great triumphs that you could actually yes
3: I always felt so liberated leave. by it and yeah. again like watching that Will Arbery play when I go to theatre with Nick I can feel him the moment curtain opens we're always optimistic like we always hope. we always are we're human and beings and the moment the first line and it's in that special variety of speech that only happens in theatre oh, yes. It's we're done <laughs> I'm done. I, I, it breaks my heart and I'm done.
2: But wait, that wasn't what happened in the Will Arbery No, fight.
3: Will Arbery, I remembered. Oh, a really good writer doesn't write like I that. I see.
2: It's I just see. they don't happen very often. When well, you're not hearing that theatre tone of just, voice, that oh, theatre argot.
3: His actors are extraordinary. His And he's, it's not either that he's writing TV, because obviously he has been writing for Succession, but it's not that I'm happy because it sounds like naturalistic TV dialogue. It right. doesn't. It sounds complicated and strange. and. Right. But there's something naturalistic running through it, even though it's absurdist. And that, to me, is kind of the sweet spot. I mean, I did theatre studies A-level, so I spent did a lot you? of time reading plays, going to see plays. And I think Berkhoff came to visit us at one point. Did he? Yes, and did that weird insect move across the floor. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Judy Dench visited us. That was really? very exciting. Yeah, you know, crappy state school. And she, the first thing she said was, we close to tears, and we were like, uh, what's going on? And she said, My house just burned down. Oh. And we're like, Oh, that this extreme thing. and she still came to see us. It's very Whoa. nice of her. Her entire house burned down. But yeah, I really I do really object to that kind of it's just nobody no one has ever spoken like that. It's so stiff. It's unactable, so people continue to act it and there are so many of those plays. And the other thing I really disliked when I was young was um I mean it's such it's cliche now but it was the height of it is uh, modernised Shakespeare modernised in a completely irrelevant direction so everyone's right. in Iraq war outfits right. or right. everyone's at the circus or just right. these themes that in the late 90s was just sure. you couldn't get away from no Shakespeare sure. I was in most I, of them yeah I thought I'd rather see you all in fucking doublets right. than in these Iraq war uniforms well, which, forms, do, which well, have no purpose
2: which doesn't fit this part
3: of the play and then the tank no comes no and about stop it, it. And when it works well, it can be amazing when when the play and the theme have some kind of cohesion. Yes. And the greatest play I ever saw was Measure for Measure done by Complicity, I think. It had such a oh, strong yes. effect on me that I, I... saw that. Yeah, it really... Oh, that was amazing. There was a black man playing, what's his name, the brother of a sister. Cla- uh, Claudio. Claudio. And out of that play came N.W. and a lot of things in my mind gosh really yeah that was a spectacular performance it's an
2: amazing amazing play
3: and such a good example of like what i hate that word diversity i'm not diverse i'm just a person but when they started casting more interestingly with this kind of great scope of different people yeah the resonances transform yeah you get a different play like everybody benefits it was just extraordinary to see this black british man playing Claudio, and being so isolated on stage and being yeah. the one who who's forgotten almost. Like, it really...
2: Sentenced to death for lewdness. Yeah, yeah, it really...
3: I never forgot it, and I, that was such a, a gift to see that, that play. That was
2: the play that bonded me to your husband, Nick. Yes. Uh, because the first time we met, I'd just come off stage from doing that play. I just came off stage for doing it in New York, playing the Duke, and yeah. um, and I walked in, and he said, "Where have you been?" And I said, uh, I, was, "I won't do it. try and do his accent again." <laughs> uh, I said, "I'm just doing this play," and he said, oh, "What are you doing?" I said, "Mr. He said, "What part?" I said, "The Duke." He said, "I am going to do his accent." He said, "Be absolute for death." Yeah, that incredible speech, be absolute, it's which he says to Claudio, yeah. which is like.
3: You, you suck know,
2: it up. You like should it. actually, yeah. and not because of the consolations of the afterlife, you should seek death because yeah. life is so shit.
3: Yeah.
2: It's just one of the most it's radical, extraordinary, extraordinary yeah. speeches in all Shakespeare. And Nick quoted it from beginning to end. And yeah, I was, was like, I feel like by. we're going to get on. What about that thing about racial uplift? What about that sense of that? Have you ever, have you felt like theatre has, has done, do you feel like it, has ever got beyond, can get beyond, this sense of being something that is supposed to be medicine for us. That there is a sort of whiff of it being improving in a way that is an actual turn-off of, for enjoyment. For example, your play was described by a reviewer as being more of a happening or an event than an actual play. And I wondered whether that's actually something well, you prefer. I like that.
3: I mean, sometimes things like... One of the early things I saw at the Tricycle was a Stephen Lawrence trial. Which they specialised in in those days, animated. And I didn't find that it wasn't moralising because it was reality. Yeah, it was the truth, and it was an extraordinary thing to watch what happened animated. And to me, that play was astonishing. That was the first time I'd seen that format of transcriptions turned into theatre, and it has a ritualistic element. It feels very essential when you're watching it. Like you're watching an ancient Greek play or something. Yeah. It's about justice and it's happening right in front of you. That I don't mind. And I love to see ancient Greek plays because I do feel justice being enacted in front of me. What I don't like <laughs> is, uh, I mean, I, if I never see another play about a bourgeois man and woman and their marriage and I can't deal with that shit. <laughs> I cannot, I cannot deal with it. Even the ones like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf? You no, know, it's a wonderful play, but I have seen it too many times. Right. And I I need something really uh, shocking to happen on stage, I think. I need to be a little uncomfortable and yeah. I like obscenity. I, like, I read all that stuff, Antonin Artaud and all that. Yeah, I was very struck by all of that. But both Artaud and Brecht, like, theatre is so bourgeois. Not that the novel isn't bourgeois, it is too, but theatre really is, you know... You need money. People get dressed up for it. Right. It's very respectable most of the time. You need something to tear through that. Is the state of its thing.
2: artificiality bourgeois too? Is there something innately bourgeois about the way we suspend our disbelief? And, no, and, it doesn't
3: have to be. Because if you've ever seen Shakespeare Outside, for example, or any small travelling group who suddenly turn up and do theatre yeah, in front of you, it yeah. can be so amazing. Yeah, A group came to our primary school and did Twelfth Night. And I was amazed, like right in front of us in the crappy school hall. Yeah. Honestly, thinking about that now, it's really hard to conceive of it happening. Like what group of 10-year-olds would stop and watch Twelfth Night? But we were all amazed. But really? I think it must have been, I often think about it, they must have truncated it. There's no way we watched the whole thing. But the sex change stuff and yeah. the whole school was like amazed. Really? The kissing and the kind of all the kind of homoerotic homo- undertones and explicit overtones. Yeah. It felt really scandalous and exciting. And, and 12 night, if the verse is said right, is the clearest. Like a child can understand right. that play. It's very clear. So I don't know. For me, those moments are magic. But yeah, Dragon going down to National Theatre and putting a nice dress on, I do find that a bit hard unless something, <laughs> something very interesting is going to happen on stage.
2: So with this idea, You might, might, yes, go back to this art form. You might, there might be more for you in it. What, what, how does an idea decide what form it will take for you?
3: Well, in this case, the player was writing, I had a short story called Grand Union, which was meant to be the title story of a book I published called Grand Union. And I remember reading it to Nick in a car with the kids, we're going somewhere, and the only chance I had, the only time I had was if I read it out loud and. Then he had comments in that way because we just didn't have time any other way. And as I started reading it, <laughs> it's hard to describe, but there's nothing wrong with the story. It's a very, if I can use my name like this, Zadie Smith type story, like the time of, of white teeth or something. It's like a nice, neatly made story set in North London on the canal, in fact. And it was just, I could see he looked bored. And I was boring myself, like it's hard to explain it's just that i've i've done it there's nothing there's no need for me i've really done this right and there's nothing new in it for me right even though there were loads of good things in it but the form it was in under this omniscient narrator and everything kind of it was just safe and not i don't know it was just no yeah. and when i saw his face i was like this is not i if i it was like a listen to myself like you can keep writing like this And you could have a whole career like this and nobody would mind, but I would mind. And so when I went back to think about Grand Union, I just changed my mind. I was just like, I want to write things which are genuinely new to me. So that book is full of perhaps crazy short stories, but each one is something I hadn't done before. So it was interesting to me. But then that story was like sitting in my drawer and I kept thinking about it. And I think Nick and I felt was, it's a stage in a certain way, It, it turns on. A revelation and it's quite shocking in its way but i suddenly thought well why wouldn't it be on stage it might be interested on stage and also it's set on water on two houseboats and that's not very interesting when it's written down in prose but on stage i was like oh, that yeah. is interesting that's a hard thing to put on stage and it'd be interesting to think how it would work and so then i started becoming really interested in it again so that's kind of the thing it was new on stage, but not new in prose. That's the best way I can put it. Right, 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 right. And also, quite—it's um, quite confrontational on stage. In, in the story, it could be kept safe. Part of it in, in, involves a Muslim body washing, a sort ritual you do huh. before you bury a Muslim. Within two or three days, the relatives of the same sex of the dead person come to wash the body and clean it. It's a really beautiful idea. Something we could all do, but instead is the gift of the Muslims. So I was thinking about that. That on the page is interesting, but but that on stage is really something to see. Yeah, that on stage is electric. So these kind of things interest me, like when you change form and and when the sacred sometimes is put on stage, that's very stressful. Or the obscene, it's also full of a lot of obscene things, that's very stressful. The novel can kind of domesticate a lot of things, which when you see them in person... It's different. Oh, I'm getting very excited about this. I'm <laughs> feeling the trail. But it is scary, too. I felt that with Wife of Wilson, too, that things I said I translated in that play. Once there were real people saying it, was so shocking. It's, like, so obscene. Like, yeah. it's funny on the page. Yeah, yeah. When yeah. Claire was, like, doing it, I was like, <laughs> oh, God.
2: Yeah, it's so crazy, isn't it's, it? The space between us yeah, becomes very, very charged. So,
3: I found it so... Um,
2: Embarrassing valid. Embarrassing
3: Yeah And that's the thing And also because In prose You can have subtlety Which you can't have on stage Every time right. They did the Rehearsals I kept on trying to make them Tone it down Like Don't do that Don't mm, do too much of that right, And right. of course On stage That's not useful advice right. you've, got, you've got to get yeah, out there up. The first time I saw Wife of Wilson I was in a state of I thought I was going to Throw up I was so Stressed And so horrified I just trying to get past The 20 minute mark where I thought then I might be... It was just terrible. And then I went to see it two days ago. I've seen it maybe 10 times now. And now I just sit down with a glass of wine. And I'm like, let's do this. Like, <laughs> it's so fun. I don't have any of that fear or nausea. I know the audience is going to love it and there's going to be laughter and So it doesn't bother me at all. But the first time I was like, I cannot deal with this.
2: <laughs> just being rude in front of me. I words just, that I've written.
3: I find uh, expiating.
2: Uh, yeah. I... I love that you're at this creative stage of your life where you want to t- do things that feel scary, right? Yeah. Find different forms yeah. for things. I mean, it sounds just the way you describe the stuff in Grand Union sounds so charged on stage.
3: Yeah, it is. It is. It's very charged. And, but again, you're not alone, right? Like all the things that are strange in fiction where you're inventing all these people, inventing the whole context in a company of actors. Here are the Muslim actors to discuss, to find out what is it like? How does it feel? What gets done? What doesn't get done. This is a completely different process in which there's a kind of authentic human feeling. It doesn't I, I disagree with the idea that because people have really felt something that makes the play good. That's not true. But it's certainly incredibly useful. Yeah. Like an amazing addition of all this human experience. And wife wasn't honestly on the page. It's fine, but when we got into the rehearsal room and everybody brought their stuff, like the preacher is played by George Ege and he is Ghanaian and he has the experience of mega church wow. people. He knows how they speak, how they move and yeah. it was immediately animated, you know. Yeah. So everybody brings their life experience and it genuinely is
2: transformative if there everyone is a vessel right for what you've written right. on stage those vessels must always be interesting always cracked, interesting leaky. of
3: course the same things happen with novels it's just we don't have a language for it when I, someone's reading a novel they are bringing yeah, yeah, yeah. themselves sure, to the novel sure, sure, sure. so all those those questions about authenticity in a novel or whatever it's not all on the writer it's right. a it's a mutual thing. It's totally. Yeah, and everybody who's reading the book is coming at it with their own life experiences, their own. They make it a different book by definition. Yeah, the word yeah. woman means something different to reader X than reader Y. The right. book is literally different. The same as in theatre, but it's just much more immediate. So I, I did begin to think that something that in the story was inert because so much is imagined or guessed that might be something else
2: Yeah, with
3: a group of actors.
2: When you put a little bit yeah. of a Bunsen burner underneath yeah. it. When you were looking at the Chaucer, when you adapting the Chaucer and you said you'd get a kick out of it, is it ever a case... I'm so interested in this idea of you pouring yourself into the vessel of the thing. When you are the writer, just like the actors do, yeah. you are now the vessel for Chaucer's story. But it's for, always
3: like that for writers. Is the it? The idea that people have of writers is... Disturbed, right? And particularly my type of writer, I am submitting myself when I'm writing to a story and to the people in it, and they just pass through you. And if if, I remember talking to Edward and Orbin about it, who's a similar type of writer to me, not in the subject matter, but in there's a lot of voices, and Teddy does all the voices. You know, he sits in his room doing all the voices. Dickens did all the voices; you could hear it through the door. Not all writers are like that. Thank God, because it's a, it's only one type of fiction and, you know, you don't want the novel to be only that. But the type of writers who do that, do that. <laughs> and it is, um, it's a kind of ventriloquist. Mm, yeah, yeah, sort you know, of automatic writing. Back. Yeah, something's coming through you. Is, something's coming through you. Is there anything like
2: method writing? Did you start to start channeling, channeling Alassoon from...
3: Honestly, in this case, the novel I just finished, you know, if you'd asked me 20 years ago, when I was much more... English than I am now (laughs) I remember reading Alice Walker who was one of my favourite writers at the time saying that Colour Purple Seeley spoke through her and she just wrote it down and I remember hearing Toni Morrison say the same thing and I thought in both cases give me a fucking break ladies (laughs) and now I know it to be the truth I know it to be the truth and when I read Colour Purple again it's a haunting that first page is its a human being and I have no idea why she came To speak through Alice Walker, but that is a human being. You hear it, and I think when you go to, well, times I've been to West Africa. Anyway, I felt that that role is has a formal name there. It's a griot, someone for whom stories pass through. Sometimes they can connect you with the dead. Sometimes it's not a joke there. People take it completely seriously, and I actually take it completely seriously now. I don't. It seems to me obvious that that role exists in even in our modernised, deracinated cultures. It's something that happens.
2: Did you demand more sovereignty over Nick when you were writing this? Did you realise that when you were, were you channelling the wife of Bath, did it sort of, <laughs> do you start to get into a bit of a identification state um, with your characters?
3: It's more like wanting, wishing to be like, I'm not like them. I wish I was. I've, I had that, Twice over this year, because I had Alvita on the one hand, who is this incredibly confident, sexually confident, unashamed, and also totally dominant and impossible person. And on the other hand, this character in the novel I've just written, Mrs. Touche, who's a real person, this Scottish, high Catholic housekeeper of the driest humour and the sharpest eye and uh, and real wisdom, you know I'd both th- I'd like to be both of those women but I'm not either of them I'm <laughs> not either of them it's much more aspirational the one i found hardest to let go was mrs Touchet, just because even her faith i envied it must be amazing to believe the way she believes so it, it's all um it's all aspirational really does your fame
2: ever feel like a sort of form of theater do you ever feel like you're performing the part of Zadie smith
3: it's it's uneven like, for example, this is a true story from last week. For the past six months, I've been going to the mail print place on the Kilburn High Road to get the novel printed out so I could edit it by hand mm. as I went along. I must have spent hundreds of pounds by this point, you know, printing it out over and over again. And halfway through the process, because the same girl most times, I did have the slightly vain thought, but what if she's keeping it? Or, you know, if it's after all something that, true. you know... I have to sell okay. it some Yeah, I had that thought. And then last week I went to get the final time I'm ever gonna print it out. And she looked up and she said, Is this your novel then? And I was like, Yeah And she said, Well if it ever gets published and you ever get famous, just come right back here <laughs> 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 And I was like, oh. <laughs> and This is like in my own neighbourhood. Oh, that's pretty good. Like this North London girl, Muslim girl in a headscarf, like couldn't I would hope to be my target audience was just like, no clue. I've been publishing it out every, every day.
2: <laughs> it I was. helped Brent become yeah. the borough of culture, That's right. Missy. So it's
3: completely... It's, it doesn't happen a lot. It just depends <laughs> but, where I am. But you if don- I'm on Bleaker Street, I'm going to get stopped 10 times right. in a day. But if right. I'm in Kilburn High, nobody gets. Right.
2: a fuck. I suppose what I mean is, we, of course, there's this thing of... Yeah, this. Truism that we're always performing, right? And I just always no, I think about you <laughs> that you are there is a part of you that is sort of a version of yourself and is demonstrating something of yourself.
3: I definitely go out in costume. I yeah. mean, I know I do. I, and I, those movies I watched in the 30s, 40s, 50s movies, like I don't have any casual clothes. Right. I mean, what you're seeing me, I'm wearing jeans at the moment, and that I have maybe two pairs of jeans. I don't wear casual clothes. Right. I only have. Costumes like women from the forties, like Joan Crawford. I know that to be the case, and I think when I looked at those women I was kid, I thought they they wear armor. The thing I hated, and I'm sure it's just a kind of internal misogyny, is the idea of being, you know, the the little blonde chorus girls in those movies. Mm. That was like my nightmare. And then the black options were all maids, and so I I didn't want to be any any of those people. I wanted to be like Joan Crawford, but black, if that makes any sense. Yeah, good. <laughs> and, and as the years go by, as my face gets more and more severe, and my nose gets longer and longer, my head, I think, oh, it's achieved. It's happening. <laughs> <laughs> it's happened. I am the black Joan Crawford. Just it's in fine. time
2: for your residency yeah. in Carlisle. All right, I've got a last question for you. I'm so fascinated by the idea of taking some more of your characters out. Do you know what I mean? Taking them out of the study, out of a single reader's relationship to them, out of your relationship to them, putting them in a live... Setting on stage where they can
3: well, they've always been the problem with the novels is they're so firstly they're badly plotted, which is a bad thing for theatre, and they're so ambivalent, and that's why they've never really people are always trying to uh, adapt them, all of them. Yeah, and I'm of course very happy to let them if they're going to pay me all the rest of it, but it never works out because (sighs) there's something missing in them that that drama needs.
2: White Teeth was adapted. White Teeth adapted, and I think
3: I've I've never it was a play, but they populated it massively and it was like kind of, they mainlined the comedy. It was more like a musical almost. Right. And when they did that, Stephen Sharkey did that, I thought, that's right. Like the way a book like that works is as a musical. And I love musicals. And he could kind of see the DNA in me of that. So there's that version where I would love, if I was ever to really get into theatre, it's musicals I love and musicals I'd like to do. But in terms of drama, with this novel, from the very beginning, I knew it's for actors. I don't know what form it will be in, but all the way through when I was writing ah. Mrs. Touche, I had an actor in mind, and it was very helpful. Gosh. Thinking of her physically and imagining her doing it—how
2: <laughs> fascinating! I yeah. can't wait to meet Mrs. Touche.
3: She's—I mean, she—she she, again, she's a real person. I just got really lucky. Yeah, but she, <sighs> she is came and knocked on your door. Yeah.
2: All right. So, final question. I've got a question yeah. from—I I, I keep trying to do. Sort of one question now from a celebrity admirer. Oh, so I've got a celebrity admirer of yours. It's from Phoebe Cake.
3: <laughs> she
2: sings the theme tune of this podcast, I do know just that. in case you don't yes. know. Okay. In she's hey, very, Phoebe. very well known in our house. Yes. she's kind of a big deal in the cake yeah, family. Yeah, huge
3: in the cake family.
2: Uh, she asks, "Will there ever be a stage adaptation of your book about Maud the Guinea Pig?" <laughs> and if weird or weird, weird, weirder, weirder. Yeah, I thought so. Yeah. And if so, will you need a guinea pig consultant?
3: Hmm. I think if it was to happen, the guinea pig would be huge, wouldn't it? That's what English Theatre does with children's books. They just make massive, they make massive <laughs> versions <foot> <laughs> of tiny things. Tiny comes to see <laughs> oh, or fountain. I think
2: there's a scale problem.
3: Yeah, I think it would be a massive one. But she could probably be hired on something about... Guinea pig behavior.
2: Would you completely anthropomorphize the the guinea pig? Would you make it a sort of young person in a guinea pig yes.
3: costume, possibly Phoebe? Eng- yes, English children's literature is absolutely based on the principle of anthropomorphism. I have no problem with it at all. Sure, totally. I think animals should be more like humans. Uh, I um, saying?
2: I think Phoebe stars. You write. <laughs> I produce. <laughs> Let's do it. Uh, it's going to be your next adventure into the theatre. <laughs> I'm incredibly excited about whatever you do next in the theatres, Eddie. I'm you. incredibly excited about your residency at the Carlisle. I'm yeah. really, really, really <laughs> grateful
0: to you for
3: I really enjoyed having it. a good chat. It was good. Thank you. Thank you.
0: <laughs> hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does, they charge you a lot.
2: post your free job on linkedin.com/achieve today. All right, there she goes. There goes the great Sadie Smith. What a joy of a conversation. Anybody else want to join me in buying up the whole of the front row uh, for her residency at the Carlisle Hotel every night? Her in a moo, dry martini some jazz standards and a bit of literary gossip. I just, <laughs> I just think that's the most delicious idea. Like a sort of cross between Elaine Stritch, Ella Fitzgerald and Truman Capote. Glorious. Um, I just thought it was such, uh, just a wonderful chat. And I'm so grateful to Zadie for taking the time. I thought it was so fascinating, this stuff about how a particular sequence might be a little safe on the page but if you were to put that thing embodied on stage it suddenly takes on a thrill and a charge from the liveness and i just thought that is the most glorious description of the difference between page and the stage it's uh, it's a different deal when you're seeing it right in front of you another way in which i find it so so thrilling Thank you, Zadie. I really loved talking to you. Um, Stage Door Johnny is an off-script production. Thanks, Louise Berry, for your exec producing. Thank you to Acast for all your podcast support. Thank you to the musicians, Iggy Cake, Phoebe Cake gets a shout out, possible future as a theatrical guinea pig thank you to my producer, Ben Backhouse, who is just terrific. And thank you to you, to all of you who've been listening and sending me so many messages. And by the way, you can get in touch with me if you're at all inclined to. On Instagram, I am jonathan.is.cake. And you'll get a lot of updates about the podcast and you can get in touch and I'll try and reply to whatever you want to ask, any thoughts or feelings. And listen, if you go to wherever you get your podcasts and you rate and review, honestly, just trying to find some light in the jungle for this little plant of podcasts. It's such a overgrown place out there that any little helps. It really, really does. Next week, My guest is one of the great lions of British theatre, Sir Richard Eyre. Richard Eyre you know from a thousand different productions and ten years as the Artistic Director of the National Theatre, in which time he presided over a golden age of British theatre. He's one of my very, very favourite directors. I realised in the researching of him he may have given me more pleasure uh, on stage as a, an audience member than any other director i've ever seen i mean he really has he he is responsible for some of the landmark productions of the 20th and 21st centuries so please join me for my chat with richard it's a doozy
1: stage 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 door johnny stage 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 door